Let's talk about marijuana forecasts, shall we? And how these poor forecasts of late are actually leading to shortages in supply, shortages in marijuana. Here's cannabis expert Mitchell Osak from Quanta Consulting. He joins us right out of the gate here on a Friday on Global News Radio. Hey, Mitchell, good afternoon and happy Friday. Same to you, Jeff. Okay, we have a pot shortage. What what exactly is happening? What's going on here, Mitchell? Well, um, as ironic as, as it sounds, uh, something like 19% of all products that should be available through the Ontario Cannabis Store are out of stock at any given time. And this is according to the auditor's report that was just published a couple of days ago. Okay, and what is happening here? Uh, how does this all work? Who's responsible? I mentioned this uh, marijuana forecast uh, just uh, seconds ago because there's reports that at one time there was an excess of marijuana supply and now we're out of stock. So how does this all work and uh, why is it going so wrong? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. There still is an excess amount of supply. It's upwards of 1 billion grams of cannabis across the country. What we are seeing in Ontario is a mismanaged inventory management program by the Ontario Cannabis Store. So essentially, it's an inability of the OCS to order the right product and the right amount of product in their inventory. And at the same time, the inability of licensed producers to ship you know, newly grown products that's not, say, over 100 days, 200 days old. Now, the old joke, Mitchell, is when it comes to forecasting that uh, weather forecasters, and do apologies to our good friend Anthony Fresnel for this, but, uh, you know, get paid for being wrong most of the time. Having said that, uh, is that what's going on here? Why are we getting it so wrong so often when it comes to marijuana forecasting? Is it because we're still just kind of in the infancy, uh, if you will, of legalized marijuana? Yes. Uh, to be fair, we're still only three years in which uh, is not a long time for a new industry. That's number one. Number two is the OCS does not get recent point-of-sale data from most uh, retailers, so they're functioning with a lag. And number three, a lot of these products are new in the market. They're new to consumers, and we just don't have a lot of data on their take-up and consumer loyalty around them. Okay, what does this mean, though, uh, Mitchell, for those that hold marijuana licenses and have stores uh, right now? And what does it mean for the industry as a whole? Because I would imagine, and you and I have talked about this, it seems endlessly, but uh, one of the big battles when it comes to the legalization of marijuana is, of course, to uh, get people away from the black market. But if you're going into a store time and time again and they don't have your product, I mean, is this just not driving them back uh, to the illegal market? Absolutely it is. So, you know, one of the goals of the Cannabis Act was to eliminate the illicit market. And depending on the uh, analysis you look at, the, the black market is still anywhere from 40 to 60 percent of total consumption in Ontario and in Canada. So this mismanagement of inventory and forecasting is not doing its job uh, in terms of getting people into the legal economy. That's number one. Number two, which I think is just as important is that the burden of these out-of-stocks is falling disproportionately on sort of mom-and-pop cannabis retail stores. And they're the ones that live and die by their product inventory that they use to satisfy local demand. They don't have the same resources and funding as the larger cannabis chains. 
And because of that, they're the ones that are disproportionately suffering from these OCS problems. The larger chains have greater resources and could weather the storm. All right. And of course, also suffering are Canadian taxpayers, I would imagine, because uh, I remember just ahead of legalization, all the talk was this was going to be such a boom when it comes to taxation and uh, really help, you know, stuff government coffers, uh, if you will. And again, if we're turning people more towards the illicit market because things are out of stock, then you're not seeing that tax revenue come in. So with all of that being said, what do we need to do? How does this get better, do you think, Mitchell? Well, again, Jeff, you nailed it right on the head. It was supposed to be a boon for, uh, for government coffers. It hasn't turned out that way. And in fact, we've got the worst of both worlds. So if you look at an all public sector model, like in Quebec, where they have roughly 50 to 55 stores, the uh, provincial agency, the SQDC, has produced a profit for the province. So in an all-public model, it is, pro- it is possible to get a profit. We have a profit with the LCBO. In Ontario, where you have a mix of public and private sector engagement, you have losses. So where do we go from here? My recommendation is we adopt the, the Saskatchewan model, which keeps the provincial government as a regulator, because it's important to have regulation in this industry, and we pull out, get the provincial Uh, authorities to pull out of the wholesaling and retailing of cannabis to customers and uh, retailers. All right. How likely is that just finally on this, uh, Mitchell, that the government will pull back or pull out? On a scale of one to ten, zero. Okay. (laughs) Um, There are other priorities. We know that. We're, We're dealing with them, COVID being number one. We're moving into an election year. We still live in a province that that not only tolerates but embraces government involvement in the selling of alcohol and tobacco. Right. So I don't see it happening. Joined by our cannabis expert, Mitchell Osak from Quanta Consulting. Uh, Mitchell, also this afternoon, wanted to talk to you about this recently released report. Toronto's top doctor, Dr. Davila, recommending that the city of Toronto should formally apply for a federal exemption to decriminalize possession of small amounts of illegal drugs. What more can you tell us about this? Well, I just finished telling you how our governments are failing us when it comes to cannabis. I'm very excited and very proud to have read that. I think it's a a massive step forward, uh, both from a health care point of view, from a um, police enforcement point of view. We're following some leading edge cities around North America, including Vancouver and Seattle and Denver. I think this is going to be a win-win for everybody, but especially people addicted to these drugs who shouldn't face the stigma and the challenge of criminalization as well. All right. Do we know what a small amount is, or is that just something that still needs to be worked out? The details are still being kind of worked out, hammered out? Yeah. Which which drugs are covered and how much are, are covered? To, to be clear, the decriminalization is only around possession of these substances. It's not around distribution, sale, or production of these substances. All right. Now, as I mentioned, Dr. Davila has recommended the city should apply for a federal exemption. Uh, Where does this process uh, go next? Is this something that has to pass through Toronto City Council first? Yes. There's a meeting on December 6th, I believe, next week, where it gets uh, hopefully adopted. And then a formal submission is made to Health Canada, who who in turn reviews it and hopefully accepts it. 
All right. And as you mentioned, there is uh, quite a few positives or upsides here for those that are listening right now and are quite concerned about the decriminalization of uh, drugs. Uh, this uh, does uh, help those who uh, are users of these drugs. Uh, it uh, helps police forces as well. Uh, what else do we know? Well, it helps communities, it helps the police, and it helps the individuals. So um, one of the reasons why decriminalization is happening around the world, and not just in North America, is that criminalization never worked. That's number one. So it's a recognition that, you know, governments lost that battle, and they lost a battle over something that's very insignificant. It's not a criminal issue. It's a health care issue. And governments, as well as um, addiction specialists and public health officials, have woken up and realized we can criminalize addiction-related issues. We have to remove the stigma associated with that to get these these poor people, I mean poor as in you know consumers, into treatment and harm reduction centers where they can be weaned off of this stuff instead of you know tying up the courts and tying up police resources in going after really what are victimless crimes. All right, goes without saying, we will be watching this closely as it goes to City Council next week. And Mitchell, I'm sure we'll be talking more about this uh, down the road. Appreciate the time with us this afternoon on this Friday. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jeff. Take care. You too. There is Mitchell Osak, cannabis expert with Quanta Consulting. And we'll take a break and we're back here on Global News Radio. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.